Wow, that was quite the entrance. Um, thanks, Garrison. Um, you guys got a much better version than what he usually tells me. He usually says I'm his uh, Sam Wise to his Frodo, which we all know Sam Wise is the actual guy that we're all cheering for, and we just kind of dislike Frodo. Um, and then also he, he started calling me Dwight to his Michael. Uh, for all you Office fans, that is just a complete bash on both of us. So, um, But thanks, man. I, I'm so honored to be able to preach uh, in front of you guys today. Uh, having started at the very beginning with Veritas, uh, I, I love this congregation. I love the people. Uh, I love the area that we're in. My wife Sarah and I have only been in East Dayton for four months now. I love the area that we're in. I love the people that we're a part of. I love this church, uh, and it's because God has us here for a reason, and I'm so thankful to be able to preach this morning. Uh, it's our first Sunday, or well, actually the first time we're preaching on Advent this, this year, and uh, instead of going to the New Testament like you think we would, we're going to stick in the Old Testament because we're old school. Um, so... Uh, our text, Garrison, has already read, is in Isaiah 9, um, and I just want to pray because I'm super nervous, but, uh, but God is great and He is made strong in our weakness. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, we are so grateful to be able to gather together today as a body, to be able to come and worship you and to make much of your son, Jesus. Lord, it is with great anticipation and with great longing that we look forward to his second coming. But we are so, so thankful for the first coming, for what he accomplished the first time that he was here on earth. Lord, I just ask right now that you would calm my nerves, that you would put me into the background and you step forward and take the spotlight. I want to be your vessel this morning, Lord, and nothing else. I pray that your word is heard and that everything silly I say is forgotten. Pray that you are made much of, Lord Jesus is to you I owe everything. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Christmas time is a time that seems like everything is illuminated. Dayton, downtown Dayton, uh, at, at the Courthouse Square, has the grand illumination every year where it lights up the Christmas tree. And we got to be a part of that this year. Buildings and businesses have strings of lights wrapped around their windows. Streets are lined with lampposts and trees that are wrapped in white strands. We drive out with family and friends to Clifton, which if you've never heard of Clifton, Ohio, it's just past Cedarville. And if you've never heard of Cedarville, I can't blame you. Um, but Clifton, a place that is literally just a few houses, a church, and a historic mill, just to see that mill lit up in over 3.5 million lights. We sing songs about lights and about the light. And of course, our neighborhoods, 
Our neighborhoods are filled with homes that have timed lights with music. Man, I, don't, I just don't understand who has the time to do that. But those, those lights, they cause traffic jams in otherwise areas that's never seen more than three cars at a time. Or they're filled with wannabe Clark Griswolds who attempt to outdo Times Square and lighting up the night sky. That may be an older reference, I'm sorry. <laughs> there is something about light and Christmas that our culture cannot separate. A lot of that could have to do with nostalgia. Our own memories of Christmas's past where we got together and put lights and tinsel and ornaments on our Christmas trees and tried to help our parents put lights on the house, but really just were more of a hindrance than, it, than anything. Um, but it could be that. But I really believe that the main reason that we are so wrapped up in lights has to do with the fact that lights bring joy. We typically associate darkness with gloom, despair, and evil. And unfortunately, Christmas can be a joyless time of year for some people, maybe for even some of you. Whether you feel the gloom of the loneliness or you feel the despair of having lost a family member, or just looking around at the world around you and seeing all the evil that exists, whether that is in your neighborhood or in your city or in the world at large. And you just can't see the hope. You can't see any joy coming anytime soon. Well, in my sermon today, I'd like to talk about the darkness and light. And the way I'd like to walk through this is by giving the big idea that the gloom of our spiritual darkness has been turned into joy by the light of our coming victorious King. I'll say that one more time. The gloom of our spiritual darkness has been turned into joy by the light of our coming victorious King. And we're going to walk through this in uh, an outline of three parts. First, the gloom of darkness. Second, the joy of the light. And lastly, the victorious king. So let's get started with our first point, the gloom of darkness. If you read in, in Isaiah 9, and you notice that the first word there is, but. But what? That doesn't really give us much. So clearly, we've already missed some information that's been given in chapter 8. In fact, if you see in your little footnote in your Bibles... It says in Hebrew that verse 1 of chapter 9 is actually verse 23 in chapter 8. And verse 2 is actually chapter 1 in verse 9, or in chapter 9. Nevertheless, we need to go back to chapter 8 to gain context for the text that we are going to go through this morning. So first of all, we go back to chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. And Isaiah writes, The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over reason and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill 
the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So clearly something is coming. Something is coming. The king of Assyria and all of his glory are coming like the waters of a river, mighty and many. But that's not it. If we go to verses 21 and 22, Isaiah talks about a punishment, a coming punishment for the ungodly. In verse 21, he writes, They will pass through the land greatly and distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Look at those words that Isaiah uses there. He says, they will be greatly distressed and hungry. And then he says something else in verse 22. He says, look, they will look to the earth. So they're going to look for things that are around them for comfort. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. So, so they're looking for something to comfort, something to help them. But all they find is darkness and gloom of anguish. And not only that, but it will be thrust into thick darkness. So what is darkness? I think we all know that turning out the light right now would probably make it pretty dark in here. But what, what does it mean right here in the text that we're talking about? Well, Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, um, writes that darkness refers to both evil and ignorance. And John Calvin, commenting on this passage, says that gloom and darkness means adversity. And he goes on to say that Isaiah adds thrust into thick darkness. This aggravates the calamity to an amazing degree. Thus the prophet states that to a heavy calamity, another still heavier will be added, which means that God's judgments will be so dreadful and his punishments so severe that they will be forced to look up to heaven. So that these punishments, they are looking, remember, for something in the earth. But these punishments will be so great that they will be forced to look to heaven. So those in the unbelieving remnant of Israel are about to experience a thick and utter darkness. Have you ever experienced a thick darkness before? I would argue that, that I felt it physically. Um, back when I was in eighth grade, I remember a time that, that our class took a field trip to a cavern here in Ohio. I don't know if it was the Ohio Caverns or wherever. It was somewhere close, but we went to a cavern. And, you know, you get into the elevator and they take you down a little bit and then you get out and start walking through all the amazing mazes of stalactites and stalagmites and I still can't remember which are which um, and the, the pools of water that are underground and dripping and forming rocks. And then you get to this point. I remember getting to this point in the, the cave where they stopped. And it's like, okay, I, I'm already like not feeling this. Why are we stopping? And he's like, now we're going to, the guide says, we're going to go ahead and turn off the light just so you can experience what real darkness feels like, the absence of light feels like. And so here we are, 
eighth graders trying to act too for, cool for school, me included in that. Um, and I'm like, man, what, whatever, you know, it's darkness, whatever. So he turns off the lights, and there's, I mean, at, you cannot see anything. You put your hand in front of your face, and there's nothing. And you start to feel it. You can literally feel the darkness. It was almost as if you were walking through something at that point. That was the feeling, the physical feeling of utter darkness. And all I could remember is like, all right, dude, let's turn that light on anytime. You don't have to let us linger in this. I wouldn't mind if you turned the light on right now. That'd be great. Thanks. And I know that's just a silly little story, but it's something that I remember from eighth grade. And to be frank, and my mom is here, and she could probably attest to this, I don't remember much, at least of what I was taught in eighth grade, um, but not much of my time in eighth grade either. But that stuck with me. And maybe you have experienced or are experiencing darkness in your own life right now. Again, like I mentioned before, maybe you've experienced a death in the family and you feel like there is just darkness encroaching around you all the time and there's no way out. Maybe you're stuck in a deeply rooted sin, something that you've just struggled with for so long that you feel like you can't get out. There's no way that light is going to get to it. You feel, you have this feeling of being consumed by the darkness and the evil that's around you. And you just long for the light to shine into your situation. Well, thankfully, Isaiah doesn't stop in chapter 8. He goes into chapter 9, which is where our text actually begins. <laughs> chapter, one, verses one in, or chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 give a reason for hope. A reason for joy to the faithful remnant of Israel. Notice that he uses the same language as he does in chapter 8, verse 22. He says in verse 1, he says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So now we're moving from the gloom of darkness and into the joy of the light. So the joy of the light. So far, Isaiah has just painted this really bleak picture for the nation of Israel. He has used the language of darkness to describe the time that Israel is about to enter into. They're getting ready to come into some type of captivity. And then verses one in, in verses 1 and 2, he starts to contrast that darkness with light to give hope in the midst of hopelessness. In verses 1, I'll start there. I'm going to read. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. Verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, what's interesting to note about Israel is that Galilee is to the north. It's on the northern edge of Israel. And so that when it was invaded by many foreign countries and armies, like it was quite often, due to its location, Galilee was one of the first areas to be attacked. 
Galileans were no stranger to slavery, despair, and darkness. This is the area where Isaiah is referencing when he mentions the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. Those people knew oppression well, and yet, Isaiah writes, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then notice how Isaiah uses the past tense there in verse 2. It says, the people who walked, have seen, who dwelt, on them the light has shined. He is writing about a future event that is yet to happen, and yet it sounds as if the people have already gone through this. Of course this hasn't happened yet. The people of Israel are actually closer to the darkness than they are experiencing the light. But Isaiah is giving them hope that they will need to carry through. There is something that is going to happen in that area that will bring them hope. The area of Galilee specifically. And for that we need to look no further than to Matthew 4 verses 13 through 16. And in that, Matthew writes, and starting in chapter 13, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. It's interesting, isn't it, that Matthew mentions this specific passage. Now, a good interpretive rule when studying the Bible, and this is not my own knowledge, this was passed on to me by others, um, is that when there is something from the Old Testament, especially in a prophetic book, like Isaiah, which is a prophetic book, it's always good to go to the New Testament to find its interpretation, or in other words, when looking You want to look through the lens of the New Testament to interpret the Old. If we use that rule here, we need to use Matthew 4 to interpret Isaiah 9. What is it telling us? It's telling us that the hope that that will be found will be found in the light, the person of Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. Now, I, I... I'm going to stop here and just, we talked a little bit about darkness, and I want to touch a little bit about what light is. And again, according to Tim Keller, the symbolism of light is meant to draw, off, draw out three different things. The first is that light gives life. Light gives life. The sun gives life to things here on earth. I did not do well in biology class. And I don't understand photosynthesis and all those things. But I do know that you need the sun, along with water and other things, to make plants grow, right? Um, I know that. But the sun also gives us warmth, minus today and this past week. We haven't really had much of that. But the sun gives us warmth, and it gives us enough warmth, even on these cold, cold days, that we can live. If, If the sun was just a little further away or we were tilted just the wrong way, we'd either burn up or freeze to death. 
So the sun provides warmth and life for us. Secondly, light shows truth. Thinking about this, I was like, well, how does life show, light show truth? And I started thinking, well, it reveals mysteries hidden by darkness, right? If you think about a detective walking around, especially at night, he's going to be using a flashlight, searching for clues, trying to find the truth about what's happened. So the light shows truth. And lastly, light is beautiful. Light is beautiful. It is dazzling, and it can bring us joy. Again, if you think back to Christmas lights, right? Most of the time, those bring you joy. Unless you're the neighbor next to Clark Griswold. Then there's no joy to be found there because it's always sunny, no matter what time of day it is. Um, but they bring us joy. Light brings us joy because of the beauty that's there. I, another thing I was thinking about is that if we think about rainbows out of the darkness, the sun shines through. And as it rains, it creates this beautiful prism effect that we see the colors. Now let's take light out and replace it with Jesus and go through our list again. So Jesus gives life. John 1 verses 3 through 4 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 1 John 5.11 says, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So not only does Jesus create life, but he can, new life can be found in him. So Jesus brings life. Secondly, Jesus shows truth. We, we just talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. So none of these texts or anything that I did any research on. I just went back to two weeks ago and stole them from Garrison. <laughs> uh, John 14, 6, Jesus says to, uh, says, Jesus said to them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if we go back into Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 9 says, And there was no deceit found in his mouth, talking about Jesus. So Jesus is truth. And lastly, Jesus is beautiful. Revelation twenty two sixteen 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify about you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. It is only in Jesus that we can find true joy. It was only when we look to Jesus that we see true beauty. It is only when we look to Jesus that we can find an everlasting joy and life. So if we come back now to Isaiah and we look at verse 3, Isaiah writes, You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now that you that is being used there is God. It's not 
the Israelites. It's not anyone else. It's God. God is the one multiplying the nation. God is the one increasing the joy. This is not a temporary joy, but it is a true joy and a complete joy that one can only have when they are delighting in the light of God. And now, if we just go on further to verses 4 and 5, Isaiah goes on to explain the reason for their joy, which will bring about our, four, our third and final point, which is the victorious king. The reason for their joy comes from the fact that the freedom that they will obtain will not actually come from them. It will come from God. If you just read verses 4 and 5 like I did starting out preparing for this sermon, it'll be very confusing. Uh, Or at least it was for me. And I was like, now how on earth am I supposed to preach an Advent sermon with words like, broken as on the day of Midian and every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult. And then my favorite, every garment rolled in blood will be burned for the fire. I was like, wow, man, that'll get people amped up for Christmas and Advent. Can't wait to talk about those. But God is so good. I wrestled with this text. I told God I have no clue what I'm doing more times than I can remember last night. But notice, notice here, verse 4 where he mentions Gideon. That's on purpose, obviously. If you remember your Sunday school lessons growing up, that Midian was an army, was one of the armies that Gideon went to battle with in Judges. Judges 6 through 8, it talks about that. And if you also remember, God took Israel's army, which was at 32,000 men at the time, and said, no, it's too many people. And took it down by 10,000. And he said again, nope, still too many. Until he whittled it down to 300 men. And it's not like they were going to fight, you know, the Huffman Neighborhood Association or something like that. Which is a bunch of wonderful people, which I don't know why we'd fight them, but... (laughs) I mean, the, the army of Midian was tough. They were big. They were known as warriors. They were large and powerful. Surely it would take more than 300 men to defeat such an army. But God had a plan for cutting down the army by 31,700 men. It was to show the Israelites that he was going to be the one giving them the victory that day. He was going to be the one accomplishing the victory using his ways. And in chapter 7, as Gideon is preparing, one of his men come up and share a dream with him. And after hearing an interpretation of this dream, Gideon worships God and goes into the camp of Israel and says to his 300 men, listen to this, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Arise, the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. 
He was giving them the victory. Their battle strategy was not to overpower the enemy with men and weapons, obviously. There were 300 guys going up a lar- against a large army. <laughs> and the weapons they used, they had a torch that was covered up by a clay pot. And then they had a trumpeter or two with them. And that was what they had. And this is what Ray Ortland calls an audacious bluff with Gideon's men blowing trumpets and breaking jars and holding up torches in the night. But God threw the enemy, the Midians, into panic and they slaughtered their own men. What an unbelievable battle strategy. But Isaiah is telling them once again that God is going to be the liberator of his people. That to the faithful ones of Israel, he will once again be the one doing the work of setting his people free. Once again, God is going to free his people from a cruel tyranny. And in verse 5, we realize that it will not be our victory. That it will not be our victory won. Notice how Isaiah again uses the passive, will be burned. This is the show that the victory is not our accomplishment. Rather, it shows us that we are just like fans to a team who have just won a major victory over a bitter rival, Ohio State, Michigan, rushing the field and joining in the celebration. And as fans, we have put, no, put forth no effort whatsoever to achieve that victory that our team has won. We just celebrate in it. Not only is Isaiah reminding the people of Israel of Gideon, he's looking forward for us to a new and better Gideon. Brothers and sisters, doesn't this sound like a story you've heard before besides the story of Gideon? Do both the story of Gideon and of the nation of Israel that Isaiah is writing to bring to mind our story? If not, let me remind you. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Ephesians 2. We've read it already. God is sovereign and nearly started weeping at the sovereignty of God this morning. But turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And I'd just like to read again what Paul writes. This passage was so, so large for me in understanding grace, understanding my sin, where I was, and what God had done for me. Paul writes in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich 
and mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing, so that no one may boast. I memorized verses 8 and 9 when I was in the, sixth, the fifth or sixth grade. Not fully knowing the meaning of what that was. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And it is not anything, nothing that you have done. If it was anything else, it wouldn't be grace. Praise the Lord for passages like this. Christian, this is your story. This is our story. We were once in deep darkness. In fact, it wasn't just darkness. We were dead. We were dead in our sin. And there was absolutely no hope, no reason for joy. The darkness was thick around us. And there we were, lost. But God sent His Son, the light of the world, to shine into our darkness by grace, to look upon our dead lives and make us alive together with Christ. Paul later writes in Ephesians 5, verse 8, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Going back to, to John Calvin, kind of wrapping up his commentary on this section of Isaiah, he says, the prophet, when he speaks of bringing people back from captivity, is not looking at a single age, but includes all the rest until Christ came and brought the most complete deliverance to his people. The deliverance from captivity was but a prelude to the restoration of the church and was intended to last not just for a few years, but until Christ would come and bring true salvation, not only to their bodies, but to their souls. And now we wait. And now we wait. In Christ, we have been freed from the most utter and thick darkness, our sin. There are things that we may be experiencing that, that seem so dark, that seem just 
so bleak that there's no hope. But Christians, there is hope. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we do have hope. Because Christ came. Christ came 2,000 years ago. And he shined a light into our darkness. We have seen that light and been set free from the captivity in which sin once bound us. And the victory that we now claim comes not by us, but through the death and resurrection of our victorious King, King Jesus. And again, now we wait. Now we wait. We wait with great anticipation. We long for Jesus to come again so that we can be with him forever. But not only that, but we now wait for chapter 6, or for verse 6 and for verse 7. Isaiah is building up to something here that you're just going to have to wait to hear. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are great and you are wonderful. Thank you for grace. Lord, we are so in awe that you would send your son to free us from the darkness of sin by dying on a cross and rising again so that we can take part in the light that's shining in to our lives now. Lord, we pray that in this Advent season that not only would we look back to your first coming, but that we would be reminded of our need to long for your second, Lord. Thank you for your word, Father. In it, there is truth. We love you and give all glory to Jesus. Amen.